0: Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. To the book of Revelation. Uh, before we get there, um, just as a recap... Uh, A couple weeks ago, months ago, we started into a series on the book of Daniel. We concluded Daniel, took a little bit of a break. This summer, we're going to be studying um, the seven churches of Revelation. We're going to begin with Revelation chapter 1, which doesn't really introduce us to the churches yet. But it does introduce us to the context that John is writing in. And begins to lay some of the application of the book as a whole uh, for us. Um, Next week is a bit of a special week. Um, Next week, God willing... We are going to be having one of our missionary partners here. And so next week's going to be a special week. And because of the uh, the country of origin from where they come, um, it's going to not be on the live stream. So live stream people, I love you. Uh, I wish we could share this with you, but he's uh, and their family are coming from the European and Asian area. And they're going to be sharing from God's word and both in the morning service and probably during Sunday school too, sharing a little bit about the context in which they find themselves in between um, what God is doing in a very turbulent part of the world. I'm beating around the bush many, many times to try and help you understand. Be here next week if you want to hear more from those dear, dear people. I encourage you to be present. If you cannot be here, we would be happy to provide an audio recording afterwards. But with the world the way it is, we have to be careful with what we put out there and how we talk about things. And we want to give them maximum freedom to share what's going on in their um, ministry region, and how we can pray for them, and how we can partner with them. Because friends, we live in a world that's just kind of crazy and upside down, and it's it's been that way for a long time. But certainly, at least in these last months and years, um, there seems to be uh, just just an increased awareness of this, perhaps. And Revelation kind of ties us into this. Because John is writing, and he's writing from an island called Patmos, and he's writing during a very, very challenging time for the church in the first century. Um, Much, much worse than what we currently face here in this room, in this state, in this country. Um, But certainly a challenging time like many of our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ experience throughout the world. So today we're going to begin this new part of our series on kings and kingdoms and open the book of Revelation. Now, as Mark kind of alluded to in his prayer, revelation can be kind of intimidating, right? I can be a little bit intimidated by revelation because there's so much going on here. And it's a different way of writing than so much of the rest of the Bible in several ways. Um, in the study of Revelation, we find that the book has visions, it has churches, it has lampstands, it has seals, bowls, trumpets, beasts. It has a whole host of numbers. You know, you've got the 666, you've got seven, you've got uh, 1260, you've got all these kind of different numbers. What's going on with all these things? Um, you have a lake of fire and you have a promised paradise. In, in the beginning, John is writing and he's writing from exile in Patmos. And you come to the end of the book and it talks about how we will. One day forever be with the Lord. And we get this picture, this picture of the New Jerusalem and God's promise that people, my church, I am coming quickly. I love the book of Revelation. The more I read it, Um, But as we kind of frame our study for for today and for the next couple um, sessions that we are together, uh, there's something I want to point out to you about the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's just simply that. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. If we read the book of Revelation and we get so caught down in the weeds of details that we miss that the purpose of this book is to reveal the Lord Jesus who came, who died, who rose again, and who will one day be coming back for us his people, if we miss that, if we miss that he's going to c- come and judge the living and the dead and that all the wrong will be made right and that we have to look forward to eternity with him in a place where there is no sin, no crying, no pain because the old order of things has passed away because God is making all things new. If we, if we miss Jesus in the middle of all this, we've missed the point of the book. We've missed it. If we get down the rabbit hole of what does that symbol mean and I'm going to dig in my heels there, Oh, my word. And we miss Jesus. We have missed the point. And so I want to say that as we start, because we're going to have a lot of great conversations and teaching here. We're going to have great times in Sunday school after we're talking about this. But we have to keep the main thing, the main thing. And the main thing of the book of Revelation is Jesus, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, technically, you could actually translate this, the revelation from Jesus Christ, You could also translate it, the revelation about Jesus Christ. And I love that because it's both a letter from him and and a word from him, an apocalypsis is really the word revelation here. And it's a word that means to reveal or to disclose or to unveil. This is God's unveiling disclosure, his revelation to us, because if he didn't reveal it, we would have no idea what is coming in the future but I'm so thankful he did. I'm so thankful that he did to give us a picture, not only of what is to come, but to give us a picture in the midst of a broken down world, that there is a conquering King who reigns and who rules over all. And we can take a deep breath and go, oh. you and I today can take a deep breath. If we are in Christ, we are a new creation. We, we are founded in Jesus and we can go, oh. knowing that whatever comes to us in this world as John writes earlier in his letter of the, of the gospel of John, in this world you will have trouble, he records Jesus saying, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We can go, huh. Aren't you thankful? Just do that with me. Just take a deep breath in. Breathe out. Okay, this isn't Lamaze class or anything like that, but you know, just deep breath in. In the midst of the trouble and tribulation and and challenges that believers and people face today, we can take a deep breath knowing God is in control, even when we don't fully understand. In fact, especially when we don't fully understand. So, I'm going to start us off by giving you some data, okay? I don't want this to be too academic, but I feel like you need some data in order to hang your feet on what is going on in the book of Revelation. So, here's a couple of things. Number one— The book of Revelation is written in a genre called, that's a style of writing, called prophetic narrative. Can you say prophetic narrative? Prophetic narrative. Okay, so prophetic narrative is this. It's a combination of apocalyptic and epistolary literature. And you go, what on earth is he talking about? Okay, apocalyptic is this. Apocalyptic is all the crazy signs and symbols that you see in writing we We face this some in Daniel daniel's one of the apocalyptic books. Ezekiel is one of them. I think Isaiah has some in there as well. Revelation and Daniel are kind of the two big apocalyptic literatures and apocalyptic it it in its classical use in its normal use uh, it, it, inclu- it it can come on. It communicates, that's the word I was looking for, um, fantastic imagery, lots of metaphors, but using these things to communicate a truth, particularly in the Bible related to the end times. Many times in its normal writing, it can have this sense of doom coming to it. But the idea behind apocalyptic literature in the Bible is that in the midst of all this coming destruction and doom and judgment, all this kind of stuff, there was hope. There is hope because God has ultimate power over the wicked, regardless of how difficult the suffering of the righteous is. Where God will come and he will set everything right and you can bank your hope on that. That's the idea of apocalyptic literature. Now, I use this big word epistolary, okay? Translated into normal people English, like what we would use every day. An epistle is a letter, all right? When we talk about the epistle that John writes in 1 John, Second John, Third John, to, to, he's writing a letter. So Revelation is a prophetic narrative, which is a mixture of this crazy symbolic and yet foretelling of the coming of doom and judgment and all this kind of stuff. But it's also a letter because he wants to communicate to a people. And one of the ways you communicate to people is through a letter. Um, The other things that you need to kind of have an idea about with Revelation is it's the last book of the Bible. I didn't know if you knew that, but it's the last book of the Bible. After that, it is a sealed, closed canon, the end of the word of the Lord written and given to us. Um, But it has significant ties to the rest of Scripture. It's impossible to read Revelation without going back in time to a lot of other verses. In fact, Pastor Warren Wiersbe has said that of the 404 verses in the book of Revelation, 278 of them contain references to the Hebrew Bible. Just think about that. When he's writing, he's not just communicating something from God, God is weaving into this story, into this vision, into this revealing things that he has told the prophets, things that he has told the patriarchs. He's weaving this whole tapestry of of, of a letter and a communication demonstrating who he is, what he has done, and how he meets his people where they are at to bring them redemption and rescue. In fact, Revelation ties the other end of the scripture. So you have Revelation on this side, you have Genesis in this side, and you have beginning in a perfect garden, and you have ending in another garden. And between, you've got the story of sin and redemption. So Revelation kind of bats cleanup, if you will, but it does so with the context of involving at least 278 references to the Hebrew Bible. In other words, we should never read the book of Revelation in isolation from the rest of God's Word. We always have to be saying, why is that image there? What, What has come before us to help us understand that? Especially when the clues or the the, the um, interpretations of symbols are not directly in that passage or in that text. Um, it's written by John. Now, mo- most scholars believe this. I think this makes the most sense, given ev- everything involved. I won't take you down that rabbit trail. But John is an apostle. He, he's a follower of Jesus who comes to be his disciple. And he walks with Jesus throughout his years of ministry here. He's one of the first people to show up at the tomb when Jesus after Jesus rose from the dead, he walks in, he looks, and he believes. And then he goes and he runs to tell the others. Um, John is a beloved disciple of Jesus. He's the last living disciple of Jesus, we believe. discipled, and, and he discipled one of the early church fathers, a guy by the name of Polycarp. How would you like to have the name Polycarp? That's just a fun name. Um, here is the area to which he is writing. This is the Mediterranean region. So on your right-hand side of your screen, you can see down in the bottom right-hand side, you've got Lebanon, or you've got Syria. Underneath Syria, you have Lebanon. Underneath Lebanon, you have Israel. John is not there. He was there. He lived there. He grew up there, all this kind of stuff. Um, He finds himself eventually in Asia Minor. And you find this in modern-day Turkey. So you've got the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. When he writes the seven churches' letters, it's a circular letter that he's giving to... specifically to a church, but it's to be read by the churches. And this is the ancient postal route, all right? So when the the letter goes, and it's left Ephesus, it's going to go in this circular route because that's the way you delivered mail in that time. You can see it's really, really small, um, right to the left of the yellow boxes around the things. There's a small island, and its name is Patmos, John is there, and he's not there of his own accord. He's there because most likely he was um, sent there to have an exile, right? He's having a big time out, basically, kids. He's been sent to go chill off somewhere in the middle of the Aegean Sea, and it's, a, it's an island that was used as a penal colony. In other words, it's where they sent people um, when they didn't want to house them in a prison, and they didn't want to kill them, and so they'd send them to an island like Patmos, several miles away, 37. miles away from the mainland, and you couldn't really get off this island. If you've ever been to Alcatraz, anybody ever been to Alcatraz off the coast of San Francisco? Yeah, so you go there, and it's called The Rock, right? Maybe you've seen The Rock movie. Maybe you shouldn't see that movie. But it's a story of basically a prison that's really, really hard to get out of. And in the midst of trying to get out of this, John couldn't go anywhere. He finds himself in the middle of the sea. There's not a ton of trees on here. He couldn't cut down a a tree to make a boat or anything like that. He's in the middle of a colony that was designed for people whom the authorities didn't like. He's probably writing around the year 95 AD, or 95 CE, depending on which dating system you're using there. Um, 95, so this is a later book, right before the turn of that very first century, or the second century, I guess it is, Um, and he's writing there, and most most people believe that there is an early date that is held by some, most likely it is the later date uh, for a host of different reasons, Um, but he's writing during the reign of Domitian. Uh, Domitian is a notorious persecutor of the church. He's kind of like Nero, who came a couple decades before him. He, he, he was opposed to the gospel. And so John is on the island of Patmos until he's let off the island of Patmos. Uh, according to the church fathers, he was let off in about 96 CE or 96 AD. Now, when we approach the book of Revelation, there's at least four major approaches. Um, I won't give you the technical terms. We talk about them later if you want. One of them, though, looks at Revelation as being events that have happened in the past and have already been completely fulfilled, either in the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 or in the fall of Rome in the first century. One of the benefits of that that perspective is that it sees some historical application to the time. Um, There's another view called the Historicist view. I guess I'll give you the names. Preterist, Historicist. Uh, In the Historicist view views the events of Revelation as unfolding throughout the course of history. And so it it doesn't see things, uh, it sees things as future, but, but it symbolizes things as you go through the ages. So one of the challenges of that view is you're like, well, is this that or is that that? And you're just trying to figure out how to find agreement on what Revelation is saying and how it applies to the unfolding course of human history. There's an idealist view, which doesn't seek to identify the symbolism found in Revelation historically, but, but it in some ways spiritualizes it or sets forth timeless truths concerning the battle between good and evil continuing in the church age. Then there's also... Uh, a fourth view. And this is the view I I hold to. Uh, It's a futurist view. It, It sees revelation as events largely unfulfilled. Now, with that, though, it is very common to find people who have that view who also see in the first couple chapters here that John is writing to a specific context, like Ephesus, Smyrna, um, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So there's, an, there's, a, there's a common application that he's writing to, or a common historical context, but that when he starts into, especially chapters four and later, he's talking about things. He's taken up into a vision in the beginning of chapter four, and he's given vision and sight into things yet to come that culminate in the judgment of the wicked and that culminate even more in God's people of all time being gathered to ra- gathered around the throne in the new heavens and the new earth in a sinless existence. So that's the that's the perspective I take uh, is a futurist perspective, beginning especially in chapter 4. I give that to you for this reason. Um, because there are so many different ways of understanding that. And if you want to deep dive on that, I can give you some material to do some more deep dive of your own study into those different views. But the reason I give you that is I want you to know my cards before we come to the table, right? This isn't poker. I'm not hiding my cards. I take a futurist view that beginning in chapter 4, there is something that God takes him into after this. It says, and he's up in heaven and he's experiencing something that is in perhaps an eternal existence, you know, the throne room of God. But then he sees things, the bowls, the trumpets, all all these judgments, a great tribulation that one day will literally come on this earth. So amidst all the symbolism, there is a literal fulfillment of much of this writing to God's people. Now, all of that said, here's part of the historical context that John is writing in. The purpose of the book is to comfort persecuted Christians and to exhort them towards faithful perseverance. Because the the members of the churches, living at the time of John, and really even the members of the church, Big C Church, all followers of Jesus for all time, we've lived largely in a hostile world, hostile to the gospel. This was very apparent in the first century. But John's writing to these churches, and he's encouraging them towards faithful perseverance. I love the way that Daniel Green writes this in the Moody Bible Commentary. He says, While revelation provides much insight into into events yet to transpire on earth, it was written originally, originally written to people in desperate need of faith and encouragement. And I love this. He says, All prophetic information is given in support of this main theme. John is writing Because he's communicating a revelation from the Lord. But this revelation is designed to help their eyes not look at the outward appearance of the things, but to look up to a God who is ruling, who is reigning, and who will return. And they can bank on it. They can bank on it. There's some background for the book of Revelation. Now, for this morning... We're going to take Revelation 1 in various segments. So please read with me verses 1 through 3. We'll remain seated. The revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his slaves. What must quickly take place? He sent it and signified it through his angel to his slave, John, who testified to God's word and to the testimony about Jesus Christ and all he saw. The one who reads this is blessed, and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it are blessed, because the time is near. In these first couple verses, we are introduced, again, to the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the revelation from Jesus, this is the revelation about Jesus, because everything in Revelation has to do, has to do, points us forward to a conquering king to the lion of the tribe of Judah, to the one who sits at the right hand of the father and who will return for his people. It says here that God gave this revelation to show his servants or to show his slaves. The word there for servant or slave is bond servant. It's one who willingly joins himself to a master right? When we come into faith, we willingly join ourselves to a master. And he says, to those who willingly done that, my servants, my bondservants, my slaves, God gave this message to show what must happen very soon. What must happen very soon? Revelation is shown so that people know what will soon take place. In other words, God does not want his people to be unaware, but he wants them to be prepared for the things that come. The word soon here means um, has in reference to a a relatively brief time in relation to another point of time. So soon is a good translation, and a short time is another translation. So there's a sense of imminency behind the actual meaning of this word. When the time is near— I think it's one of John's convictions. When the time is near towards something, it changes how we view things. A a couple weeks ago, we had um, my family come into town, my wife's family come into town to celebrate my daughter's birthday. And one of the things, uh, maybe you do this too, um, but we do, like, like we clean and everything, but when you have people coming to stay in your house, you've got to move like the beds into the right rooms. You got to get the sheets on there. You got to make sure the towels are there. You got to make sure, like you want to make sure, I guess, um, that the dirt is swept from all the corners and underneath the chair and all this kind of stuff. When you're getting ready for something to happen, and when you see it as being soon, you work with a different fervency. You work with a different focus and you direct your kids in a different way too. Get that, get that, get that. Come on, they're going to be here in 45 minutes, 30 minutes, 10 minutes. Whew, we're all done. All right? We were actually way ahead of schedule this time and it was so great. Um, God is writing this. Because it's going to happen in a short time. Now, time for an eternal God is a very funny thing. Because what I might consider a short time, you know, I'm like, yeah, we'll do that soon. And my kids will say, well, is it now time to be there? No, it's not. Well, is it now time to be there? No, it's not. And it's kind of like what we do with God. Like, God, when are you going to come back? Now. Now. You know, and and we have this sense of anticipation. But soon in the mind of God is a bit relative. Because he is eternal and he exists outside of time. But when we live with the expectation that it could happen at any moment, it changes the way we look at things. It changes where our perspective is. It it changes how we go down into the rabbit holes of life that we experience. Like, if we live with the imminency, the, the expectation that God could return for his church at any moment, it should change the way we live. It should give us hope. It should give us a fervency it should give us an expectation of god how can i join you in what you've called me to not next week today all we're promised is today this is a soon taking place event and this underscores the need for god's people to be prepared for these culminating events now and to be aware of them and to talk about them because the inauguration of these could begin at any moment now also notice here in the first couple verses that he sent this and he signified it. In other words, that there's signs involved here through the angel to his servant, John. He, he's going to give in pictures. And one of the reasons scholars talk about it is because um, John's writing in a very challenging time in history. And like how I tried to give you a couple of hints as to who might be coming to speak next week, and from what area they might be coming to speak, uh, um, Jesus is giving a pictures throughout this book. God is giving signs and, and images to help us understand this and to tie the story of God together. Um, but, but it's all about God's word. John is the one who testified to God's word and to the testimony of Jesus Christ in all he saw. But notice verse 3. The one who reads this, he says, is blessed. Blessing comes to the one who reads the words of this book, who doesn't take away from them, but who reads them. Not only that, um, those who hear the words of of this prophecy and keep what is written in it are blessed. One of the surefire ways to experience blessing, and this is blessing according to God, right? Not blessing according to us. It's not like I'm going to have a bigger house or I'm going to have a bigger boat or I'm going to have a a, a nicer vacation. It's, It's blessing of the fellowship of God when we hear his word and we walk in obedience with him in it. That's how blessing is experienced. Blessing comes by hearing God's word and saying, God, I'm going to take you at your word. I'm going to trust you in this. I'm going to set my mind and my heart and my eyes on you and on your purposes because you're coming. And in fact, this is one of the first of seven blessings in the book. We're, We're going to find that seven is a very key number throughout the book of Revelation. And seven has a, a, um, an idea of completion or perfection to it. John likes the words, or the number seven. He, he has that also in his gospel. And so this, this number seven that keeps coming and coming and coming and coming has this completion, perfection idea. My point is this, is that when we want to experience God's blessing in our life, hear the words that God says and keep them. Walk in obedience to them. Trust the God who gave them to us because his ways are good. His ways are right because he is a ruler and a king of all the earth. John, in verse 4, it says, John, the writer here, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is coming. From the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Right? How about that for a starting of, of your, your, your benediction there? Or your, your invocation, I guess it is. Grace and peace to you. He, he's, he's giving them these incredible things, this blessing from God not just from God, but from the one who is and who was and who is coming. Also one from the seven spirits, likely a reference to um, the Holy Spirit here as alluded in Isaiah chapter 11 before the throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. All of these phrases are dripping with Old Testament imagery. When we talk about the one who is and who is to come, it's it's a way of him kind of hearkening and, and, and kind of going back to um, how God revealed himself in Exodus chapter 3, right? And, and actually, the, the Greek of this is really weird, which it's written in a way that's not normal, um, but it points to the eternal nature of God. God writes this, and, and he talks about the spirits, and he talks about Jesus Christ, the, the reliable witness, the firstborn of the dead, uh, hearkening back to Psalm 89, verse 27, a ruler of the kings of the earth. When he starts this, he doesn't hold back in trying to communicate and, and to reveal through the working of the spirit in the writing of this text that this is God who's writing it. He wants you to have this great picture, this grand picture of who God is. But he also wants you to understand, and I'd understand, what God does. Because that's tied to who he is. The second half of verse 5 says this, To him who loves us. To him who loves us. John wrote the famous words in John chapter 3, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. In the revelation here, he's saying, To him who loves us. Present, ongoing, tense. The way that God loved the world is the way that God loves people. All in. To him who loves us and has set us free. Right? That, that is a completed event. He has set us free from our sins by his blood. The only way to experience freedom is through receiving what Christ gives through his death and resurrection. This, this atonement, this cleansing that comes through his blood. So so God loves us and he set us free um, from our sins by his blood. But on that, verse 6, he gives us purpose. He he made us a kingdom, right? He he made us not just a single person. He made us a community of people, priests to his God and Father. The The glory and dominion are his forever and ever Amen. When it talks about priests, a priest in the Old Testament understanding is a person who served. They served God. They served whatever role God had for them to do. And when God calls the church, and he he uses that imagery that he used for Israel to help bring definition and clarity to the role of a believer even today, he uses this word to say, you're a person who serves. You and I are people who are called into a kingdom, but we're called not to just be in that kingdom. We're called to be priests. We're called to be people who bear the image of God to the world, who reach out our hands and reach out our hearts with other people because they're made in the image of God to give to them the words of life, the words of truth, the words that have changed our lives for eternity. Then he gives this kind of almost a, 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 it's almost like a song in verse 7. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, including those who pierced him. And all the families of the earth will mourn over him. This is certain. Amen. He's talking about clouds, and this is an image going back to Daniel chapter 7. He's coming in the clouds. There's going to be a time when the Lord Jesus returns. He's going to come in clouds and every eye will see him. And he's quoting here from Isaiah 19, verse 1. But he's also quoting from Zechariah 12, 10, where he says that the ones who look look on me and who pierced me, sorry, the ones who pierced me will look on me. There's coming a time when even those who reject Jesus will look upon his return. They will look upon it. Some doubt the truthfulness of scripture, but here Jesus is reminding us, by the way, I will return. He he says, it is certain. Amen. In the end of the book of Revelation, he he writes this, which is a similar Greek phrase, amen, come Lord Jesus. This this photo is taken in a church, in the cave church in Egypt, um, when when we were able to be there a couple years ago. There was not all the people there, but this is one of the areas where believers gather in a largely Muslim context. And written in like chiseled out stone is this frequent reminder, amen, amen, come Lord Jesus. And to say amen is to agree with it. It's to say, yes, God is coming. It's not just a God, I hope you come. It's yes, you are coming. We can bank on that truth. He says in verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is and who was and who is coming. I am the Almighty. In the first eight verses. He doesn't want you to miss all these things about who he is. He is the alpha and the omega. This is a starogram, okay? That's a big word that basically means a starogram. Uh, No, star. it, it It means cross. A starus is a cross. And you can see in the center of this, and also on the left hand side, there's a cross. And on either side of the upper part of that cross, you have the Greek word alpha. And on the other side, that looks like a W, you have the Greek word omega. God is from beginning to end, which is basically a way of saying he has always been. It's not not saying that he has a beginning because he's eternally existent, but from our finite viewpoint, we look and we relate and we interact with a God who has always existed and who will always exist no matter what comes. He's reminding the church He's reminding those churches, he's reminding us today in the middle of the broken-down chaos that they find themselves in, this is who I am. Never forget, this is who I am. Let's read together verses 9 and following. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation kingdom and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called patmos because of god's word and the testimony Of Jesus Christ, or of Jesus. Now, when he says, I was your brother and your partner in the tribulation, he's not talking about the capital T tribulation, because that's actually, that revelation is gonna come a couple chapters after this. It's alluded to in various portions of the Hebrew prophets. It's also alluded to several times in the Gospels and the writings. And it's also described in great detail in some chapters we're gonna study in coming sessions. When he writes here that he's a brother and partner in tribulation, he's saying, I'm with you in this. You're experiencing hardship, so am I. And we know this because he's writing from a colony for prisoners in the middle of the Aegean Sea. But he's not just their partner in the hardships that they face. He's their partner in the kingdom. He's their partner in what God is doing here on this earth. And he's also the partner in endurance that are in Jesus. Like, like the endurance that he experiences is not because John in and of himself is strong. It's because John is looking to the one who is strong. And he's saying, God, I need your endurance. And God graciously gives it to him. And he's on this island called... Patmos, because of the word of God and the testimony about Jesus. And so it's likely he's put there by someone who did not like what he was preaching. He did not like, they did not like what he was saying, because he was saying in the midst of a godless culture, he was saying, you know, there's a different way. There's a better way. There's a way that leads to life, and it's Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself is the only way that, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Those were his words that he wrote for us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14 in his gospel. He's giving this picture because he wants to remind us he is there not just because he did something wrong. He didn't do anything wrong according to God's system. He did something wrong according to the world system because one of the rulers didn't like what he was saying about Jesus. And they said, you're becoming a troublemaker. You're giving a sense of, um, of chaos to the Roman Empire off to Patmos you go. It's interesting. There's actually two different kinds of exiles in the ancient period. One was only done by the emperor. And when the emperor exiled someone with that type of an exile, that person never came back from wherever they were exiled. There's a second kind of exile, which is probably what John's experienced, where it may not have been Domitian himself, but another one of the people who served under Domitian who said, you're causing too much trouble, off to Patmos you go. John is here, And notice what he is doing. It it says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet. All right. So he's in the spirit. What's he doing? He he is worshiping In, in the middle of the circumstance he finds himself in. He has his heart and his mind focused on God. He is worshiping. And I don't know whether this was a Sunday, a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. There you have this phrase, the Lord's Day here. Commentators are divided on whether or not that refers to a Sunday or whether that doesn't. Typically in the Gospels, um, one writer says... when they refer to the first day of the week, they usually call it the first day of the week, and we find that in the Gospels. Here it's the Lord's day, so I, I take it to probably not mean a Sunday, but we can agree or disagree upon that. But the point is, is that he is in the Spirit, he is worshiping God in the middle of the tribulation (lowercase t) or lo- yeah, lowercase t that he is experiencing, and he hears a loud voice behind him like a trumpet. I almost brought my trumpet in here so I could just like blast it for you. So here's this thing, and I'm a trumpet player from a long time ago. When you play a trumpet, one of the things we're known for is being loud. In fact, usually, at least in the bands and orchestras I've been in, we typically sit behind the flutes, which they absolutely love. No, they don't. They're like, oh, would someone make the trumpet players be quiet? Because we just like to be loud sometimes with this voice like a trumpet. Like a trumpet saying Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. He wants them to write a letter, an apocalyptic letter. One that's going to be read not just by Ephesus, but by Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. All these churches are going to read all these letters. They're going to read this whole revelation because it concerns them as a people of God. And while while John is going to have specific words to give to each of these churches, it's going to be instructive for them all in their walk with Jesus. He says in verse 12, I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Old Testament reference here. Uh, And among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. Another Old Testament reference from Daniel. Dressed in a long robe with a gold sash. This is a priestly garment wrapped around his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronzes, as fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand, a sharp double-edged sword. This kind of sword is the one that's kind of talked about after Adam and Eve are exiled from the Garden of Eden. That there's, that there's someone there placed with a double-edged sword, a Thracian sword coming out of his mouth. And his face was shining like the sun at midday. Have you ever looked up at the sun at midday? I don't recommend it. It really hurts. (laughs) Even when there's an eclipse going on, you look up at the sun, you go, ah. So John turns around. He hears this trumpet, and he is just overwhelmed by this picture. And he's on a place called Patmos, right? So he's on an island. Here's actually the island of Patmos. I meant to show you this earlier. There's the Acropolis. That's where they had some uh, worship areas for some of the pagan religions. Scala is one of the main harbors uh, that you would go into. Um, here's another picture of the island of Patmos. There's not a ton of uh, big trees or anything like that. It's a lot of trees. It's a lot of rocks. It's in the middle of nowhere. You can kind of see it there a little bit better off the shore of Ephesus. Some, um, I, w- I was watching a, a, a tour guide video this week of uh, Patmos. He was, this tour guide was taking, uh, taking the video around Patmos. He said, on a clear day, John would have been able to see the mainland to which he was riding. So he, he's, he's getting ready to write this book. He can see the place. But, but what he turns to see is just this amazing image of God. This amazing, white as snow, white like wool hair, um, eyes like fiery flame, fine bronze as feet, voice of many, waters, power, majesty. And what would you do if you turned around and you saw that? You're like, trumpet, turn. Oh, my word. What What happens? Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. (laughs) Yes, that is the proper response whenever you see this kind of a thing, right? Whenever you see God in his glory, the proper response is flat on your face because there's no other response but this type of worship and humbling of oneself before a God who is majestic and mighty and above all. It's kind of like what Isaiah finds. When Isaiah has his vision in Isaiah chapter 6, he, he actually says, woe to me, I am, I'm undone. And, and he, he finds himself on the floor. He's not the only one. Moses comes and he approaches this burning bush. The presence of God is in this place. And God says to him, Moses, take off your sandals because you're standing on holy ground. The ground is not holy because the sand or the dirt or the rocks were holy. It's holy because there God was right before him. And when John turns around, what consumes his sight is the one who is and who is to come. He's just undone by this. I fell at his feet like a dead man, verse 17. He laid his right hand on me and he said, Don't be afraid. Now, John had spent years walking with Jesus and he had heard these words a couple times. One of them, they're out on this turbulent sea, being tossed and turned by the waves. And they're going, oh, what's going to happen? Because if, if you were in that, you'd probably be on the side of the boat hurling, or you're down in a safer part of the boat, just trying to like stay safe. And they're undone. And Jesus commands the wind and the waves. He says, "Stop. Peace. Be still." He essentially turns to them. And he says, "Don't believe your fears." trust me. I love the way that the Jesus Storybook Bible translates it. He says, did you believe your fears instead of me? And here the one who is and who is to come looks at John, who's flat on his face because he's in the presence of God, and he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. He says, I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead but look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. What an amazing thing. John had seen Jesus after his resurrection. This is several decades after that, probably six decades after the Lord Jesus went up into heaven. Since that time, he has a relationship with God through the working of the Spirit through his life. But here, He hears the words, don't be afraid. And this is a Jeremy thing. I I think he's being reminded that's right. Jesus said, don't be afraid. Jesus comes to his people, his people who trust him, who come into relationship with him. He says, look, there's a lot you can fear in this life. Get your eyes off your circumstance. Get your eyes off the world. Get your eyes off the chaos you see. Get out. Get your eyes off of the inflation you experience. Get your eyes off of how big your garden will be this year in order to make food for next year. Get your eyes off of the chaos and the sin, which doesn't mean don't walk with God's truth in it, but it means don't have your eyes so focused on this that you miss this. I think John had to have his, his heart and his mind just Reset. He's already worshiping, but he needs to be reminded, here's who I am. And it, undo, it undoes him. And God reminds him, don't be afraid. I was dead. I'm alive. Not just alive to die again, but I'm alive forever and ever. That's a way of just like underlining and highlighting that he is alive and he's going to remain alive because he has conquered Death. And in fact, he says that I hold the keys of death in Hades. In other words, he holds the power over them. He holds the authority over them. If you have keys to something that gives you authority, unless you stole the keys, which I don't recommend you do, but, but like if you've been given keys to something, you can go to the car and you can open it. You can go to the house and open it. You can do all those things because you have authority over that. Jesus has been given the authority over death and Hades. Death and the grave. Something that a very persecuted church would be blessed to remember. And it comes to verse 19. And verse 19 is a really important verse for the book of Revelation. And here's why. It says this. It says, Therefore write what you have seen, what is and what will take place after this. Therefore, write what you have seen. Jesus is telling him, I want you to write the things that you have seen. What is and what will take place. There's two ways you could translate this. Um, One is, therefore, write what you saw. What is and what will be after these things? That's the New English translation. Um, The other way you could write this, and this also comes from a footnote in the Net Bible. Therefore, write what you have seen. Both the things which currently are and what is going to happen after these things. There's a division going on in this translation. There are things that John has seen and things that John is experiencing, but there are things that are yet to come. And he's saying, I want you to write the things that have happened that you're also experiencing, and I want you to write the things that are going to happen after these things. After these things is a technical Greek phrase, it's meta tauta. Can you say meta tauta? Okay? You need to remember that for about 10 weeks from now, okay? <laughs> remember, when you go to actually Revelation chapter 4, one of the ways Revelation chapter 4 starts, it says, after this, or after these things. That's the next time that phrase pops up in Revelation. And so there's, there's, a, um, there's a, many scholars, especially ones who approach Revelation the, the way I, I do, um, they would... Put this in in a three-part division. Write the things you have seen. You know, the the things that John has already experienced in chapter 1. The things which are, you know, you could translate both the things which currently are. But the things that are going to take place. In other words, John is giving us a structure, I believe, to the book of Revelation. Write about the things which you see. Then write about the things that are going to happen after these things. And he, he signifies this by that phrase, meta tauta, that comes back in in Revelation chapter 4. So he's giving us a structure for how to understand this book. So he's writing for the present, ten, present context, but he's also writing for something that is yet to be fulfilled. Remember that for when we come back to Revelation chapter 4. Um, so what do we do with all this? Oh wait, we have one more verse. Um, this is the secret, or the secret, of the seven stars, and you saw it in my right hand. And of the seven gold lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This verse kind of ties together some things he's talking about in chapter 1 and launches us into chapter 2. One of the things that is helpful in reading Revelation is reading it through in large sections. In fact, if you have the opportunity this week, I invite you to sit down and read through Revelation in one sitting. Just read it through, if you can. S- set it apart that hour or so that would take, because one of the things about all these images is sometimes they give us very clear, here's what the image means. In chapter 2 and 3, we're going to be introduced to lampstands. You're going, lampstands? And the lampstand here, according to John, is a church. It's a church. Why he uses this metaphor? It's the genre of writing. It's the apocalyptic nature of this. It's the symbols and everything. But many times he will give us clues as to what he's talking about in the text. What do we do with this? Well, before we... We'll jump into the seven churches next week. But I think the reason, one of the reasons that John gives such a glorious picture of who God is in this first chapter is he never wants us to forget who God is. In the middle of the life in which we live, in the midst of life's trials and persecutions, he wants us to be consumed with Jesus. He wants us to go, oh, that's right, God is in control. God is ruler over things. Things may be seemingly disjointed and challenging here, and God is allowing that for a time. He's allowing the wickedness of people to continue for a time. Wow, he calls us to be a kingdom, priests, people who serve him by sharing the good news of Jesus with those who are far from him. In the midst of this, in the midst of this task, he wants us, I believe, to be consumed with Jesus Christ. You want to take one application home from this chapter, it's that. Is my life consumed with Jesus? I don't know about you, but it's really easy to get sidetracked from the main thing. It's really easy to get down a path of bitterness or to get down a path of unforgiveness or to look at people and say, I can't believe they would do that and go into a, a, a heart of judgment. like that, That's easy for me and maybe for others of us here. He wants us to be consumed with Jesus. He wants our hearts and our minds in all that we are to say, Lord, here I am. Would you use me be your hands and feet into this world. I don't know what that looks like for you this week, but I do know this. Whatever God has placed before you, he's given you the opportunity to choose whom you will serve. He will give you the grace. He promises the grace. He promises the peace. He promises the joy when you turn to him in the midst of your trial. I was with a dear brother this week who stopped in with his wife because um, he's going through some, some heart issues, like literal heart issues. And um, it's been an ongoing thing for him. And, and one of the things that he told me is um, that his desire was for healing. He wanted to pray for healing. And he wanted a couple of us friends and brothers in the Lord to pray with him for God's healing in his life. But he said this to me. He said, what I care more about than my healing is God's glory. And I went, oh, yes, thank you for reminding me that's what I need to care about too. He, they, they said to me, they said, God has been so good. God doesn't owe me anything. In the midst of his trial, that be a health trial. Yours may be a different kind of trial. Believers and Jesus find themselves in all sorts of trials in this world. God's invitation is come to me be consumed with me. And I'll bring a spiritual blessing to your life that you could never begin to imagine. Would you pray with me, please? Father, forgive us for so often becoming consumed with ourselves and with the world in which we find ourselves in. And God, that doesn't mean that we, that doesn't mean that we disregard the world. It means that we need to look at the world through your eyes. That we need to love the world with your heart. That we need to look at our family and our friends, some of whom are just walking in a completely different life, not experiencing life with you, but but experiencing life with addiction and life with selfishness and, and, and life with pursuits that are just leading them down a place of challenge, and struggle. God, give us, restore to us. God, you've promised to work in and through us for your glory. God, we need you to do that. And so, God, we come to you this morning. Asking you, as we turn our hearts and our minds to you, asking you, God, to do a work in and through us for the glory of Christ that we can't do apart from you. Lord, even, even speaking here this morning, I'm reminded I can't change one person's heart here. Holy Spirit, would you lead and guide us into what is true? Would you help us to turn from what is false and to trust you with what we need? We pray that for our lives. We pray that for the lives of those whom we love. We love you, God. We thank you for first loving us. We thank you, God, and bless you. In the name of Jesus, our Messiah and our Redeemer. Together we say, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message, or would like more information about our church, We invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.